0: Our Father in heaven, Lord, what a privilege it is to be here at camp meeting. We pray that the same Spirit that inspired Your Word will be here to speak to each and every mind and heart that's here, that's watching through the live streaming, and I pray that You would put Your words in my mouth. I pray that You would be magnified. I pray that the beauty of the truth may be seen in ways, perhaps, that we have not seen it before, and that we might become more like Christ and hasten His return. Thank you for each and every person here. Guide us now, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. And so as Brother Diamond stated, the title of our message is Emergent Theology Overturning Sola Scriptura. Emergent Theology Overturning Sola Scriptura. Now he told me I'd be able to see that from him over here and that's not going to happen. So I'm going to have to face the screen. I'm going to ask one fundamental question throughout today's seminar and tomorrow's, and I'm going to seek to try to answer that question throughout today and tomorrow. And this one fundamental question is this. Is emergent theology as expressed through emergent worship compatible with fundamental belief number one on the authority of Scripture? Those, most of you know that we have 28 fundamental beliefs, and the very first fundamental belief is on the authority and the sufficiency of the Bible, that it is all authoritative, that's the only source of revealed data from which we should gain an understanding of Christ, the plan of salvation, how to worship, what spirituality is, our doctrines, etc., etc. It's the only revealed source. And so, to ask the question differently, can we as Seventh day Adventists continue to uphold fundamental belief number one if we choose to co- incorporate emerging? emergent practices into our worship services. So this is what we're going to be chipping away at today for about an hour or so today and about an hour or so tomorrow. Now, um, in this first presentation, as we seek to answer this question, this first presentation will deal with the, the story of Jeroboam found in 1 Kings 12 and his violation of the sola scriptura principle and its inevitable results. The presentation tomorrow will outline how emergent theology relates with the Sola Scriptura principle, all right? So that's how we're gonna to try to answer this one fundamental question about emergent practices and whether they're compatible, really, with the with our, our, funda- our first fundamental belief. Uh, and I'm hoping that some of you that are here for the first time will kind of catch up and review some of the things that have been presented either by Diamond Garcia or Jonathan Zirkel or some of the other some of the other presenters all right the sin of Jeroboam what is the sin of Jeroboam uh, what is its nature what are the results of this sin well we're going to find that in 1st Kings chapter 12 verse uh, 25 to 33 so it's camp meeting and I hope that you brought your Bibles with you So 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 25 to 33, and as you get there, Solomon is is dead, and um, Rehoboam is the king of Judah, and Jeroboam has just become the king of the northern tribes. They've now been completely separated. And so we pick it up in verse 25 and we'll read to verse 33 just so that we can kind of have this in our minds as we continue to go on throughout this presentation. It says, Then Jeroboam built Shechem and Mount Ephraim and dwelt therein and went out from thence and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, Then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam king of Judah, and they shall kill me, and go again to Rehoboam king of Judah. Whereupon the king took counsel, and made two calves of gold, and said unto them, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set the one in Bethel, and the other put he in Dan, and this thing became a sin. For the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. And he made an house of high places, and made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month, on the fifteenth day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah. And he offered upon the altar, so did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places, which he had made." So he offered upon Bethel the 15th day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised of his own heart, and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel, and he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. Now, it didn't take long for the Lord to intervene. And he intervened very quickly, right in the very next chapter, indicating what he thought of what Jeroboam did. And you can read about that later on in 1 Kings chapter 13. And as you've had a chance to read through the kings, you've probably noted that every successive king that followed Jeroboam had this commentary. It's it's amazing how the Bible can just sum up 10, 20, 30, or 40 years of a king's reign in just a few words. But each and every one of them, other than some of the other things that were stated about them, had this commentary. Neither did he depart from the sin of Jeroboam that caused Israel to sin. The next guy shows up. Neither did he depart from the sin of Jeroboam. Neither did he, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, until you get all the way down to 2 Kings chapter 17, and they are ultimately taken over by the Assyrians. And so turn there with me to 2 Kings chapter uh, 17. 2 Kings chapter 17. And as you see up on the screen there, it said that Jeroboam made them sin. It says a great sin. Again, we haven't even defined what the sin is yet. But this is the Bible commentary on what took place. Let's read 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 20 to 23. Now, this took place about 200 years after Jeroboam had set up his two calves of gold. It says, And the Lord rejected all the seed of Israel, and afflicted them, and delivered them into the hand of spoilers, until he had cast them out of his sight. For he rent Israel from following the house of David, and they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king, and Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord, and made them sin a great sin. For the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did, they departed not from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had said, by all his servants the prophets, so was Israel carried away out of their own land to Assyria unto this day. Now in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, the Bible says that whatsoever was written aforetime was written for our learning. If we are ignorant concerning the nature of the sin of Jeroboam, uh, we will not escape the consequences of that sin should we, corporately as a church, participate in it. If Jeroboam got the ball rolling, and if each successive king after him did nothing about it, this, this kind of sin was like a cancer that became systemic. I learned that word when my wife went into nursing. Systemic was a new word for me. And if it's a new word for you, it means that if you have cancer and the cancer is systemic, it is inoperable. You can't just excise a certain piece of it. It has penetrated and infiltrated the entire systems of the body. There is nothing more outside of divine intervention that any physician can do to heal it. This case was even outside of divine intervention. They had chosen to follow in this path and God did not work a miracle in order to, present, to prevent the consequences of their actions. And so this sin here is the cause for the demise of the northern kingdom and the, over, the overtaking of them by the Assyrians. It's not that, just that the Assyrians were a mighty, superior power militarily, although they were. That wasn't really the cause for why the Israelites were defeated. Anytime God's people are defeated, it's not necessarily the might of the opposition that does it. It's the sin of Jeroboam, the Bible said, that did it. That is the ultimate cause of what was taking place. And yes, that sin is systemic in its nature. If we, are, if, if we go ahead and take on that sin, then there will be major problems. And so, I'm working in the area of worship. I've been working in there for, for quite a few years, and so hopefully I can get the project done maybe this summer or this fall and finish off this 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 behemoth of a dissertation. And so you're the guinea pigs here, uh, you that are, that, are, that are watching, that are listening, you that are listening live, via live streaming, and so I'm going to take the sin of Jeroboam and then apply it to worship. If most of us were tr- going to try to guess what this sin was, it would probably have to do something with worship, but there's something even more dangerous going on um, uh, with this sin. now. I'm gonna talk about the kind of technicalities that belong to theology. You know, when some people talk about worship, for most people, the most important worship part of worship is a person's attitude. And if a person's attitude is fine, then, it's, then everything is okay. Well, of course attitude and our personal standing with God is incredibly important. I'm not gonna talk about that today because it's, it's, it's so easy that I, you don't need me up here to tell you that. Um, some of the other things are a little more insidious. And so we're going to talk about some of the other machinery that make, up, that make up worship and how Jeroboam went about interpreting this. Now, if we were to define worship, how would you define it? The word worship is just a word. And, and so, but what what really does it stand for? What does it represent? What is it? Well, worship includes five indispensable and integrated parts without which it would not be possible to either speak of or to experience worship. Five indispensable parts, all integrated together. Without any one of these, there is no such thing as worship. And so, the very first aspect of worship is, of course, the divine presence. Without God, well, obviously, there is no no reason to worship. But if God was all there was, there wouldn't be worship. Next, we have, um, let's see, we have worship leaders. If there are no worship leaders, there is no worship. If there are no ritual actions, there is no worship. What do I mean by that? Ritual actions encompass place. In other words, where are we worshiping? Is it, is, is it in a garage? Is it in a warehouse? Is it in a Hindu, Hindu temple or hut? Is it in a church? Uh, When are we worshiping? Is it Sabbath? Is it Sunday? Is it some other day? Um, What is really central in worship? Is it the music? Is it the preaching? Is it the the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper? Uh, Those are all ritual actions that are involved. Uh, What about the dress of the worshipers? Uh, All of those things are all involved, uh, uh, and those are all ritual actions. Also, there is an encounter between the divine presence and the worshipers. That's the, that's the fundamental reason for why we come together, to have an encounter with God, and then after that encounter, there is a response to the encounter. You can analyze all kinds of worship scenes, and I've been able to reduce it down to these five basic broad components, and without any one of these, there is no such thing as worship. All right? And we're not even talking about true worship versus false worship. True worship versus false worship assumes... These five components, all right? I see some of you want to ask questions. We're going to do that later, because i got a lot of material to present. The sin of Jeroboam. What is the major sin of Jeroboam? Is it the worship style? Is it the fact that he selected priests out of every class of people? Is it the fact that he overturned the major festivals? Is that really the sin of Jeroboam? I want to suggest something different here. All those are definitely part of it, but the major sin of Jeroboam is a rejection of God's Word, which is hidden right in the passage. Look again to 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12, and in verse 27 it says, "'If this people go up to do sacrifice "'in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, "'then shall the heart of this people "'turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, "'king of Judah, and they shall kill me "'and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah.'" All right, so that's the context. Now, here it is in verse 28. It says, whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. It's right there. It said that he took counsel, and when you read the the next part of the verse, and he made two calves of gold, it tells you where he got his counsel from and where he did not get his counsel from. All right? So, the very first step in the wrong direction is that God's word is rejected and replaced with human philosophy and culture, okay? God's word is rejected and replaced. I'm talking about as authoritative sources, okay? Because culture is involved in ritual actions. We may or we may not get to that, okay? I'm talking about an authoritative source, that interprets the five components, the divine presence, the worship leaders, the ritual actions, the encounter, and the response to the encounter. The authoritative source for Jeroboam for interpreting the entire worship phenomenon is human philosophy and culture. That's the very first and most deadly step in the wrong direction. As a result, this is critically important. As a result, the sanctuary is eclipsed and no longer provides the correct interpretation for the five worship components. Look at the passage closely for a minute. Again, in verse 27, if this people go up to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, and then you know, their, their loyalties will be turned to Rehoboam. So he took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Now notice, Where did he set up these gods? He set the one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. In other words, the people were no longer to go to Jerusalem in order to have an encounter with the divine presence during the festivals. What was at Jerusalem? At Jerusalem was the sanctuary. That's what was at Jerusalem. So once God's word was ultimately rejected, The sanctuary, as an interpretive principle, was also rejected as well. It cannot be any other way. So the sanctuary is not just... If you thought the sanctuary was just one of the 28 fundamental beliefs, along with the Sabbath, that you can kind of compartmentalize in a box with all the other doctrines, it isn't the case. It has a much greater value and, and, and interpretive value, and, I, and I'm probably going to speak to that. The, the presentation is, I think, pretty well organized, but my, my delivery of it may not be, so we're going, to, we're going to go back and forth on this. So the sanctuary is eclipsed and no longer provides the correct interpretation for the five worship components, because that's where people went to worship, correct? They went to the sanctuary to worship. It was a place of worship, but I'm going to tell you that it is much more than a place of worship. It provides the correct interpretation to all those components. And once you ditch God's word, you ditch the sanctuary as the principle that interprets all that. And I'm going to keep pounding on that as we continue to move along today and tomorrow. So once God's word is rejected and the sanctuary is eclipsed as providing the correct interpretation, the five worship components, I'm talking about the divine presence, the the worship leaders, the ritual actions, the encounter, the response to the encounter, all of those things constitute what worship is, without which it's impossible to speak of it or to experience it. Once the God's word and the sanctuary are knocked out, those components are now interpreted on the basis of philosophy and culture. That is the authoritative principle that decides how to interpret all of those things. So, this is the decision that the folk in Jeroboam's day have to make. It's impossible to talk about worship without all those components. The divine presence, worship leaders, ritual actions, encounter, and the response to the encounter. This is the decision that they're gonna have to make. Are they going to use human philosophy and culture as the system that interprets the worship components, or are they going to use God's word and the sanctuary as the system that interprets the components? Are you seeing the the issue here? And you cannot blend the two together. You cannot use God's word, the sanctuary, and human philosophy and culture as authoritative sources at the same time time. I can only illustrate that without going through philosophy 101, which it takes me you know, a year to take the students down at OH through the history of Christianity. It takes me a year to explain what philosophy is and how it affects all this stuff. But I'm going to give you a simple explanation for why you cannot use God's word and the sanctuary and human philosophy as authoritative sources at the same time. The illustration comes from calculating planetary motion. For a long time, Ptolemy's model worked, which was an Earth-centered model. But when you get to the 16th century where, Copernic, where Copernicus was, it was failing. and they kept trying to tweak it, tweak it, tweak it, tweak it, tweak it, "Oh, no, we know the sun is the. Or I'm sorry, we know the Earth is the center. It's got to be the center. We've all accepted it that way. And finally, Copernicus said, "Well, wait a minute, what if that's wrong? What if the sun is actually the center? And all of a sudden, all the calculations, all the mathematical calculations began to work. It makes absolutely no sense to say, well, let's just blend the sun and the earth together and assume both of them at the same time. No, you cannot do that. You're either going with a sun-centered universe or an earth-centered universe. You cannot blend the two together. This is the nature of the problem we're dealing with here. It, it, It cannot be blended together, and I'd love to take you through philosophy 101 for an entire year to explain that to you. But I can't, okay? I, ca- I just cannot. The dissertation is coming out. I gotta make a plug, okay. After that dissertation is done, then I'll make books and then, and then sell a whole bunch of books and then maybe you can buy some and, and, help me fi- and help me finance this whole expensive ordeal of trying to get a PhD. Okay, so let's look at human philosophy and culture as the system, okay? All right, so there's two, ways, there's two ways to interpret the components. Either human philosophy on the one hand, and culture, or God's word in the sanctuary on the other hand. All right, well, let's take a look at the passage, and let's look at how human philosophy and culture interpret all of those components, all right? So that's what we're going to do right now. Okay, now, um, so human philosophy and culture is the system and now we're gonna look at how they interpret the divine presence. Okay? Human philosophy and culture is the system. We're gonna look at how they interpret the divine presence, which is the most critical aspect of worship, okay? So how do they interpret the divine presence? Well, in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 28, it says, the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. The divine presence is synonymous with nature he says these be thy gods this this right here which brought you up out of the land of Egypt so the divine presence is integrated within nature once you ditch the authority of God's word in the sanctuary your interpretation of the divine presence comes from nature and here It's inextricably linked with nature. Okay? So God and nature are now indistinguishable. In pantheism, you've probably heard that, if you've been coming to the seminar, you've probably heard that word before. Pantheism is an interpretation of the God world relationship. And in pantheism, God's being is indistinguishable from nature. If you see a blade of grass, that's God. Every part of it is. Whatever it is that you see out in nature is God. You might have, you may not have heard of this word, panentheism. Okay? God is still reduced to the creation in panentheism. So in both pantheism and panentheism, God is reduced to nature. Now, what's the difference between the two? In panentheism, God's body is the world. And God's soul is the immaterial and timeless aspect of the world. If this sounds crazy, it absolutely is. Not only, that, not only is panentheism that, but as we, come, as we come back tomorrow, panentheism and theistic evolution are one and the same. Okay? So, in panentheism, well, not all of the world is God. But God is still not to be disassociated from the world, okay? So, if God was reduced to a human body, well... Then, part of that body would be, you know, everything that you see on the external, but with body-soul dualism, there is a soul, an immortal soul, you know, within body-soul dualism. You just take that, and now you apply it to the universe, and that's panentheism. So, in body-soul dualism, which is greater, the immortal soul or the body? Obviously, the immortal soul is greater, has infinite more value and worth, according to that system. Well, you just take that and now you place that within the world. And so there is a dualism in the world. You have God's body and then God's soul, all right. Yes, if this sounds absolutely crazy and idolatrous, it absolutely is. Okay, component number two. Um, If we use human philosophy and culture as the system, then what about the worship leaders? Well, in 1 Kings 12, 31, it says that he made priests from every class of people. That's the New King James Version, all right? Uh, The qualifications for the priesthood were no longer observed. That's very clear right in the passage. And in 1 Kings 12, verse 32 and 33, Jeroboam actually became the object of worship. Did you notice how many times it said, he did this and he did that? If you look at verse 32, Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month and the fifteenth day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah, and he offered upon the altar. So did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel, the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised of his own heart, and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel, and he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. So who was the one being worshipped? he was. That's very clear. So when we change established forms of worship from what has been revealed by God through his word and through the sanctuary, then we are the ones that are ultimately being worshipped. Okay, let's go to the third component. That's ritual actions. Okay, so if we're using human philosophy and culture as the system, then how are ritual actions being interpreted? well, let's look at the place, because one of the most important things about ritual actions is the place that worship occurs in. So, in 1 Kings chapter 20, uh, 12, verse 28 and 29, notice it says, after he took counsel, he diverted their attention from going to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was no longer the place of worship. Where was the place? Well, he put the one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. And the Bible says this thing became a sin. So the place of worship is no longer at Jerusalem. The place of worship is no longer the sanctuary because it's at the sanctuary where God reveals its presence. It's now in Dan or Bethel, or you know what? You could have it in any place you like. It doesn't matter because if God is inextricably linked with the creation, Dan, Bethel, I mean, how did they decide on Dan and Bethel? Perhaps for geographical locations and all that. But conceivably, any part of Israel will work because God is inextricably linked with place. And so how can you say he's only going to reveal his presence at Jerusalem? Why not Dan or Bethel? Or maybe what about some of these other nations? Doesn't God reveal his presence there? You see, there's a difference between God being omnipresent and God choosing to reveal his presence. God is omnipresent. There's no place you can go where he is not. But when we're talking about corporate worship, only the word of God is equal to his presence. There is nothing in the material creation that is equal to his presence or his being. Nothing. And so the sanctuary is no longer the place where God reveals its presence. Also, the word is not the main ritual action. The material material representations are which are condemned. Remember, he said, these be thy gods, O Israel. So now God's presence is reduced to the material creation. So if God's presence is reduced to the material creation, how is God going to talk to you? He's obviously going to talk to you through the material creation, not through his word. I wish I had the opportunity to explain philosophically that it is impossible to to have him reveal himself through his word if you believe that his presence is inextricably linked with the creation. It is not possible. So, the word of God is not the main way in which God communicates to us anymore. It is visual representations. These be thy calves. That is the way in which he communicates to us. Those are the main ritual actions that are being used. But if you look at Deuteronomy chapter four and five, this is a, a commentary on the Ten Commandments. Turn with me there. The Ten Commandments you actually see in in, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter five. But as God was uh, as God was preaching this. He said in verse 12, this is Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 12, it says, The Lord spake unto you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the voice of words, but you saw no similitude. You only heard a voice. You see, the fire and the mountain were symbols of His presence. They weren't equal to His presence. They veiled His invisible presence. They were not His presence. It was only when God spoke That they knew that they were really in the presence of God. So he says, you need to be careful because you heard the voice, but you didn't see a form in verse 13. He declared unto you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform even 10 commandments. And he wrote them upon two tables of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might do them in the land, whither you go over to possess. Now, here's the warning. Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves, for you saw no manner of similitude. In other words, you you didn't see a form. On the day that the Lord spoke unto you in Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, what would be the result? Verse 16, lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure, the likeness of male or female, and it continues to go on and on and on. He said, look, in that worship service, on the Ten Commandments, or at Mount Sinai where I spoke the Ten Commandments, it was the Word that was the main ritual action, and that really is the pattern throughout the Bible which we'll get to. Also, one of the main ritual actions when you reduce God to the creation is music. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 32, because 1 Kings 12 was not the first time, it was not the first time where these calves of gold were introduced. Most of us are familiar with the story at the golden calf. And although it took place centuries later, in other words, the Jeroboam story, I think sometimes the one thing we learn from history is that we don't really learn a lot. And so in Exodus chapter 32, what really is the main, you know, it's a worship service. That's what it is at the golden calf. What's the main ritual action? In other words, was it preaching? Well, if you look at Exodus chapter 32, in verse 5, it says, you know, when Aaron had made the calf, it says, when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it and made a, and made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. That was the sermon. That's it. That, that, there's your proclamation. Okay. In verse 6, they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is a very sensual and entertaining worship service. The word play is the same word used in Genesis chapter 26, verse 8, where Abimelech looks out a window and he sees Isaac sporting with his wife, Rebecca. That word sporting is the same word as play. It's translated differently. And he says, hey, hey, wait a minute now. I know, you know, What's the story about you know, her being your sister? No, no, that's completely inappropriate behavior for you know, brother and sister. She's got to be your wife. So they were doing things that husband and wife uh, can and should do within the confines of their own home. I don't know what, how he got that information, by the way. I don't know. Does anybody know that? <laughs> Just like an aside. Anyway, not very important. But so it's very sensual. That word is also used in Judges chapter sixteen, verse twenty-five, when the strong man Samson is captured by the Philistines, and they bring Samson, you know, to the to the to, to, to the temple where the pillars are. And they begin to make fun of Samson. They say, bring out Samson, that we may make sport with him. That word sport is the same word as the word play in Exodus 32, verse 6. So in other words, let's bring Samson out so that we can all be entertained. And what was the main ritual action? Well, in Exodus 32, verse 17 and 18, Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, and he said unto Moses, there is a noise of, it says, war in the camp. And he said, it is not the voice of them that shout for mastery, neither is it the voice of them that cry for being overcome, but the noise of them that sing do I hear. Okay, so here Joshua's up on the mountain, he doesn't actually see what's going on, but he hears all this racket and he says, it must be like the noise, they must, must be having a battle down there. Moses, of course, knows different, and he says, no, it's, it's, they're actually singing. Now, music is made up of, of rhythm, melody, and harmony. Okay, I'm going to go over here for a moment. It's made up of rhythm, melody, and harmony. Now, if music is made up of roughly rhythm, melody, and harmony, which aspect of music sounds more like the noise of war? Melody? Ba-da-da-da-da. Does that sound like the noise of war? (laughs) What about harmony? Ah. That's pretty dissonant, isn't it? Very dark. If I play harmony the way I just played it there, by the way, I don't even know what I'm playing. Is that the noise of war? No, it's the rhythms. Of course it's the rhythms. I haven't had anybody object. know, I don't know how many years I've been doing this presentation, I haven't had anybody object that it is the rhythms. It is the rhythms that make it sound like the noise of war. I've been trained as a drummer, and and so um, this is a no-brainer. Now all you guys that wanna argue about whether music has a reality or not, I mean, you can go ahead and argue in your own little circles. But (laughs) this is really a philosophical issue, by the way, because if you say that music has no moral value, you're making a philosophical statement. This is not a musical statement. You're saying that there's a part of reality that you can make anything you want. You're saying you decide what reality is. That's a philosophical statement. You're trying to make it a musical issue. It is not a musical issue. It is a philosophical issue. You and I don't decide what reality is. And don't get me going on other things. You and I do not decide what reality is, okay? So music becomes the main ritual action. When God's presence is inextricably linked with the stuff that he has created, the Bible tells us that music, rhythmic music, again, you can't have have music without rhythm. I'm talking about a specific kind of rhythm okay, rhythmically driven music like rock and jazz and all these types of things, syncopated music. That is the main ritual action, okay? Now, it's, it's only the rhythms that make people dance, and if you want, if you want to read a commentary on this, Okay, read the Adventist Bible commentary because it mentions words that I'm not going to mention in mixed company about the kind of things that males and females were doing with one another, okay? It is the rhythms that do that, the syncopated rhythms. So music is the main ritual action. It is not the word. Now, I hope that as I'm going through this, you're coming to the awareness that we cannot cannot evaluate one aspect of these components outside of the other, okay? Because the ritual actions that a person uses, that a church uses, express their fundamental understanding and interpretation of the presence of God. Those two are inextricably linked. You cannot disassociate them from one another. It would be as crazy as saying, I want to build a skyscraper, okay, let's start with a six inch foundation. That will work. No, it doesn't work practically and it really doesn't work philosophically either. Okay, let's go to the encounter. So, if we have human philosophy and culture as the system, then How is the encounter then interpreted? Well, God communicates his presence through music and material representations, again, and not through his word. Music that is highly rhythmically driven produces a powerful emotional encounter based on feelings that people then interpret as the Holy Spirit. Okay? That's what happens. When you get a group of, when you get a band up here and, and, the, and the drums are going, and you know, you don't need to have the drums, so, because the piano can be just as much a sinner as the guitar, or, or, or you know, it's, it's hard to do, the, do that with the organ really, but, um, or with stringed instruments, but it is possible, okay? If you're pumping through syncopated rhythms, even in your a cappella singing, okay, it produces a, an emotional power encounter. That's what it does, that's what happens. How many at the golden calf, besides the Levites, were saying, hey, hey, put the brakes on? Are you following me? How many at the golden calf were thinking rationally and spiritually enough to say, hey, wait a minute, what's going on here? No, because reason completely goes out the window during these encounters. And it's like a drug. I mean, you go, you get your fix, and then nothing changes. Week by week, you just get your fix, and nothing changes, no heart change. God didn't actually communicate anything to you. Nothing cognitive. You had an emotional power encounter is what you had. And it's based on the idea that God is inextricably inextricably linked with the creation. Material representations also have a very limited ability to communicate about God. We had a speaker come through Wachita Hills, And he had, like, you know, like a little statue. Now, you know, monkeys and giraffes didn't make that statue, human beings did. That's about all we could conclude. It's all we could conclude based on the material representation he had. He said, Where did this guy come from? None of us got it right. How old is he? Maybe. It's not a he at all. We could know almost nothing about that statue, other than that it was produced by a human being. That's all we could know. When when God is linked with the creation, and when our only access to him in an encounter is linked with the creation, there's almost nothing that we can know about him. Other than he exists, that's it. Because nothing cognitive is coming through. Nothing cognitive is coming through. And I'm just repeating myself. So on the basis of creation, one can conclude that God exists and that he's all-powerful. That's about it. Even when you say God created the stars, well, that's based on your previous knowledge of the Bible. You've accepted the Bible as a divine revelation. That's why you say God did it. But you can know almost nothing about him outside of his revelation through his word. I mean, don't get me wrong, I mean, creation is an awesome thing. I mean, we don't even understand the stuff, let alone God. So hence, if music and art are the main vehicles through which worshipers experience the divine presence, the encounter becomes a highly subjective, emotional, and feeling-based encounter. That's all that's coming through. And your interpretation of God, your interpretation of the plan of salvation, your interpretation of the encounter is just as good as someone else's, okay? This is really the basis of ecumenism. This is the basis of ecumenism. Modern ecumenism, ecumenism means unity, like unity between all the churches, how to achieve unity. Ecumenism is based on the fact that God never revealed himself through his word. That's why the Pope is having a heyday, okay? He's having a heyday because God didn't speak through the Bible, and so he can accept the, the, the Muslims, he can accept you know, the Buddhists, he can accept all these guys because God never spoke. They had an encounter, but God never spoke through the Bible. Okay, They had an encounter. That's all that happened. And the Muslim interpretation is as good as the Buddhist is as good as the Christian, is as good as the Adventist and so forth and so on. It's all based on the fact that this thing was never revealed by God. And that's what's taking place. Okay, the response to the encounter. Well, in Exodus chapter 32, verse 18 and 19, at the golden calf, they're singing and dancing to the music that emphasizes the syncopated rhythms. It's very sensual in nature, so the responses are all sensual in nature. Um, it says, uh, in, uh, according to the Net Bible in Exodus 32, verse 25, Moses saw that the people were running wild for Aaron had let them get completely out of control, causing derision from their enemies. So the people are out of control. Those are the responses, okay? Or else it's a, it's a highly suggest, uh, su- subjective contemplative response. That's it. And, and, and my interpretation of the encounter could be diametrically opposed to and contradictory to yours, you know what, and everyone's right, and it's okay, according to that model. All right, so that's with human philosophy and culture as the system. Okay, so we have the divine presence, just to kind of summarize, the divine presence is indistinguishable from nature, worship leaders not qualified by scripture, ritual actions, the sanctuary is abandoned, the word is no longer central, material representations and music are, the encounter is based on feeling and emotion, the response, sensual, out of control. All right, well... Let's switch systems, okay? Let's go to God's word and the sanctuary as the system. So we've looked at human philosophy and how human philosophy interprets, or I should say, in the time of Jeroboam, how they did that, how they interpreted the divine presence, worship leaders, ritual actions, encounter, and the response to the encounter. Let's look now at God's word and the sanctuary as the system that interprets these components, all right? So we'll do a little compare and contrast. So, looking at the divine presence. All right, turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. Very familiar passage, Exodus chapter 3. God has, or Moses, I should say, has been in the, has been in the wilderness. He's, he's at the mountain of God in verse 1. And in verse 2, it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of, of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. At this point in the story, Moses does not know that the divine presence is there. This is important. So he sees something very out of the ordinary, a bush that is burning, and he doesn't automatically drop down and worship. Are you following me? He doesn't do that because he doesn't know what it is yet. Verse 4, And when the Lord saw that, he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place wherein thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. It's after God spoke that Moses knew that he was in the presence of God. Are you following? It it was not the manifestation of the burning bush in and of itself. It was God actually speaking to him, the invisible God speaking to him out of the bush, and Moses said, ah, that's the presence of God. Just like Elijah. You remember the story about Eli- Elijah in 1 Kings 19? You know, there's a great earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. There's a great wind, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. And he goes, finally, a still, small voice that was it that's how he discerned the presence of god because there is nothing equal to his presence i'm not saying that god doesn't use nature in order to reveal himself it's just not an authoritative source for interpreting any of these commandments any of these components i should say god has revealed himself to you through some of your parents right the self-sacrificing that your parents have done you have seen god in that You can't use that as an authoritative source for theology. Are you following me? So we're not saying that God doesn't reveal. These are not sources that can be used when you're trying to figure out who God is, what his nature is, how we ought to worship him, et cetera, et cetera. They cannot be used as authoritative sources. They must be in subjection to the word of God. And so later on, you know, as as God and Moses are having this dialogue, well, who should I say sent me? And God says, tell them, I am that I am. The eternal one, the self-existent one, the one that doesn't change. He is the invisible God. God revealed himself to Moses here through his word. He is separate and distinct from his creation." not to be confused with the creation. In Leviticus chapter 26, this is an interesting two verses. Turn with me there, Leviticus chapter 26, verses one and two. Leviticus 26, verses one and two. It says, you shall make no idols, nor graven image, neither rear you up a standing image, neither shall you set up any image of stone in your land, to bow down unto it. What's the reason? For, because I am the Lord your God. That's a reference back to Exodus 3, 14 and 15. It's a reference back to the I am. Why should you not do this? Because I am the Lord your God. Verse 2. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. He gives the same reason. I am the Lord your God. Okay, So, we took a look at human philosophy. Human philosophy was summed up in basically the first verse. When you use human philosophy as your authoritative sources, then the presence of God is equated with that pillar or that stone or whatever material representation you have. The presence of God is equal to that. And God says, don't do that, because I am the Lord. That's a reference back to the second commandment. And in the second commandment, it basically says the same thing. You shall not make unto thee any graven image in heaven above, the earth beneath, the waters under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. God. He says he takes it personally. When you think of him as nothing more than the stuff that he's made. Maybe husbands and wives have said some things that are like, you shouldn't say. (laughs) I wish you looked like... How long would you remain married if you continued doing that? (laughs) How long would it be before you needed some marriage counseling after a statement like that? Okay? So when we think God is nothing more than His stuff, He says, no, that's not me. I don't care how wonderful and complicated that is, it is not me. So now we have... The sanctuary and the Sabbath as the interpretive principles upon which we should understand the divine presence and all the rest of the components. See, I hope that you're gonna make it to tomorrow's presentation because I'm gonna show you something about the Sabbath that I don't believe you've seen. Okay? This this is not just a battle between days, Sabbath versus Sunday. If that's all you think, I tell you, we have missed the boat as Adventists. We have entirely missed the boat. It is is much more deeper and richer and more profound than you can ever think of. And I hope that you're going to make it tomorrow. Because this is what's really at stake here. God's Word, the Sabbath, the sanctuary, this is what is at stake. So the Sabbath and the sanctuary function as the systems. Human philosophy, you get God and nature, indistinguishable. Sabbath and the sanctuary, no, you, that, that, that doesn't happen with the Sabbath and the sanctuary. Okay, in 1 Kings 8, God reveals his presence at the sanctuary, okay? Now, even before 1 Kings 8, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 12. Notice Deuteronomy chapter 12, and you can, uh, you can also look at this in Deuteronomy 16, but just a, just, just, just a few verses for you to see. In the first few verses, it talks about the statutes and judgments that God has given and and, and about overthrowing their altars and the pillars and and, and don't do like they're doing. But in verse 5, it says, But unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put his name there, okay, even unto his habitation shall you seek, and thither thou shalt come. Okay, that's Deuteronomy 12, verse 5. And verse 11. Then there shall be a place which the Lord your God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there. When God spoke to Moses and said, this is my name, he was talking about his being. He was talking about his presence. And that name came through his word. So God's word and God's being and God's presence are synonymous and not to be equated with the stuff that he's made. So when he says he's going to place his name there, that means that's the location where he is going to reveal himself through his word. It's not going to be in Dan. It's not going to be in Bethel. It's not going to be in any other place. It's going to be there. And you'll find that in Deuteronomy 16 as well. And go with me to 1 Kings 8 because it's so close to 1 Kings 12, which was where we began. And so in 1 Kings 8, Solomon is dedicating the temple. And it has God's name all over this chapter. First Kings chapter eight, verse sixteen. He's—he's—he's—he's. He, he's, 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 uh, this is a combination of his announcement and prayer. He says, "Since the day that I brought forth my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of the tribes of Israel, but to build a house that my name might be therein. But I chose David to be over my people Israel." Verse 17. And it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And it keeps going on. It's mentioned in verse 18, 19, 20. God's name. It wasn't going to be anywhere else. It was going to be there. Okay? And so that was obviously bypassed with Jeroboam. So, If God is going to reveal himself at Jerusalem, because that's where the sanctuary is, but Jeroboam places the calves in Dan and Bethel, who is revealing himself there? I mean, is God going to switch? And say, hey, okay, you guys are over there? Okay, let me go over there. He's not going to switch. Revelation chapter 4 and 5 allows for the Trinity. Beautiful chapter, by the way. Revelation 4 and 5 allows for the Trinity. You have this great scene with the Father seated on the throne and he's got a scroll in his hand and he makes a, you know, he makes an announcement. Who is worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals thereof? And John looks in heaven and under heaven. I mean, he looks in every direction. No one is worthy. Finally, the Lamb steps in and he takes the scroll. And then it says the seven spirits of God there are sent forth into all the world. It is the sanctuary that allows for the cooperation between the Trinity. Since God and the Father are personal entities, so is the Holy Spirit as well. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, God is described as He who was, and who is, and who is to come. That word, is, is the same word as I am in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. He's saying He's that God. He is an eternal God. He goes from the eternal past to the eternal future. The sanctuary and the Sabbath reveal that God exists in space and time. By the way, I haven't added anything new to your knowledge on that. But if you've been studying Greek philosophy, this is a major problem, that God acts in space and time. Okay. So in the sanctuary, is the Shekinah and the presence of God fused within the articles of the furniture? No, he is not. He is a separate entity. That's what the sanctuary tells us. The Sabbath commandment tells us that there's an eternal difference between the Creator and the creation. So when we reject God's Word, and we go for human philosophy as authoritative sources, no wonder they don't see the relevance of the Sabbath. And it's not because our Greek and Hebrew scholars aren't doing a good enough job. They have bought this hook, line, and sinker, okay? you you show them the Bible with the Sabbath text. It's like you're talking in a different language, okay? These guys are not going to see this. I'm talking about the theologians and the thought leaders. So the Sabbath shows that he's compatible with time, and the sanctuary shows that he's compatible with space. Oh hey, it's actually very revolutionary. <laughs> Sometimes only when you know what error is does the truth really shine forth much, much clearer? <laughs> And Ellen White says that God has given us a complete system of theology and philosophy in the Bible. It's very simple. So, only God's word equals his presence, which is revealed when he speaks. And God does not ever become God as he relates with the universe. The sanctuary is primarily a house of being that solves the mystery of the real presence, which has been plaguing Christianity for centuries. You know, for centuries they've debated, okay, where, where is the presence of God in the Eucharist? Is it inside the Eucharist? Is it maybe, uh, is, is, it, is it transubstantiation? Is it consubstantiation? How, how does that whole thing work? Well, they were so sucked in by Aristotelian philosophy, well, the Catholics, of course, wholeheartedly, and I mean, they make no apology about that. It is the presence of, it is the, it is the substance of the wafer that is transubstantiated into the substance of the divine Son of God, and that's all based on Aristotle, okay? And when Luther came around, he thought that the, that the real presence was still in there. He rejected transubstantiation, but he thought that the real presence was still in there. Hey guys, when we go with the sanctuary, you know where the real presence is? He's up there, okay? And he is a person. The real presence is not in an object, it cannot be in an object. The Holy Spirit is His personal representative down here. But you and I have no clue about the Holy Spirit if we do not understand the nature of Christ and how that relates with the sanctuary and the whole presence thing. It is the sanctuary, is what I'm trying to say, that helps us to understand the philosophical interpretation of the divine presence. It's plaguing Christianity. And so if you think the divine presence is integrated with the stuff, the emerging church is your next step. You are going there. You're already there. Okay, I better speed up. So Christ is the visible, real presence in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, and the Holy Spirit is Christ's invisible, real presence sent out into all the earth. Okay, going to the worship leaders. Okay, well, priests and Levites in the Old Testament. Acts 15, verse 2, apostles and elders in the New Testament. Ritual actions, this was an amazing discovery for me. All worship is directed to the heavenly sanctuary, whether it was during the Old Testament or the New. We'll get to the scriptures in just a moment. God's presence, his name, is revealed there. God's word is the central ritual action. If you're in 1 Kings 8, I want you to notice something very interesting. Look at 1 Kings 8, verse 30. Solomon is entering into his prayer now, and he says in verse 30, and hearken thou, he's he's addressing God, hearken thou to the supplication of thy servant and of thy people Israel, when they shall pray toward this place, hear thou, where is God hearing from? Did you catch that in the text? It says, hear thou in heaven. Solomon is speaking here. Okay. He is addressing God here. God hears from up there. There is a dynamic interaction happening between the earthly and the heavenly sanctuaries. God is hearing him from up there, okay? So the worship that they performed that day, the earthly sanctuary was not the center and it had never has been. It has always been the heavenly. God hears his prayer from up there. So hear thou, he says, in heaven, thy dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. If any man trespass against his neighbor, uh, and an oath be laid upon him to cause him to swear, and the oath come before thine altar in this house, then hear thou in heaven, and do and judge thy servants, etc., etc., etc. This means that all worship is directed toward that heavenly sanctuary. That is the great center. That is the great center which interprets everything else. This is what human philosophy has eclipsed from our view. And I wish I could give a presentation as to why that has happened. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. This is an amazing book. You know, Hebrews used to be the book that Adventists were known for, I think. Hebrews, Revelation. Hebrews chapter 12, an amazing worship service is happening there as I try to get to it here. Okay. Okay. Starting with verse 18. He's addressing, he's addressing the people of his time and, and, and all of us, actually. He says, For you are not come unto the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, "...nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more, for they could not endure that which was commanded, and if so much as a beast touched a mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart, and so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake." We know that was talking about when God spoke the Ten Commandments. So he's saying, when you assemble for worship, you're not coming there. That's not where you're assembling. Notice verse 22. But you are come to Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and into an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Notice the appeal now. See that you refuse not him that speaketh. So he's saying here that when we assemble for worship, for corporate worship, that's where we're going. And that isn't really new to the book of Hebrews. What is it, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, what does it say? It says, it just popped into my head here, it says, let us therefore now come boldly, where? To the throne of grace, where is that? That's in heaven. It's no different from when Solomon prayed. Solomon prayed on earth when he was in heaven. The words were there. God heard them from there. By faith we enter there. When we worship, that is the location. And if that is the location, then this idea of the sanctuary is not just one of the 28 fundamental beliefs that's equal to all the rest of the doctrines. It has a highly interpretive role that I think ever since the 1950s, we've completely lost sight of. The greatest bungle in the 1950s, you know, was what? It was the fact that the sanctuary just became a distinctive badge of Adventism. It was replaced from the system, which our pioneers understood, to just an identifying badge, that's all. It completely lost its methodological role. Sorry for that big word. It completely lost it. That's what happened in the 1950s. Don't get sidetracked on all these other issues. That was the main issue. We we weren't ready to debate the Calvinists, who were steeped in Greek thinking and in Platonism and Augustinianism, and those boys weren't ready. That was the major problem back then. So in in Hebrews chapter 12, all worship is directed toward the heavenly sanctuary. God's name and place is revealed there. God's word is central. Do you see that in the passage? It's all about God speaking. That's actually throughout the entire epistle to the Hebrews. Oh, I better not. I only got five minutes. I was going to launch into an exposition on that. In Revelation chapters 4 and 5, just picture the scene. You have the Father seated on the throne. He has the scroll in his hand. No one's worthy to open the scroll. All of a sudden, Jesus is there. Now, isn't there music up there? Where is John's attention? What is he weeping and crying about? He wants to know what's in that scroll. Are you thinking of the worship implications here? Are you thinking of what should be central and most important in a worship service? He wants to know what's in that scroll. If you study Ellen White's writings, that scroll represents the entire history of creation and of humanity, ever since since we got here. He wants that thing unfolded. He wants to know the meaning of it. He's He's not caught up in the music. That's where his attention is. That's what's central. Okay, the encounter. Since God's word is the main ritual action, the divine presence comes to us through the preaching of God's word, which is directed to our minds. That's why he says, see that you refuse not him that speaketh. How does God speak today? At Mount Sinai, he actually thundered with his own voice. He speaks to us today through the word, which is the only thing that's equal to his name and his being and his presence. That's how he speaks to us. So that's why the, the, he says, see that you refuse not him that speaketh. And there's even more in the passage. Since God's words have far greater ability to communicate than music or art, the encounter is primarily a cognitive encounter. Look at Romans chapter 12, verse 1 for a moment here. Romans chapter 12, and verse 1. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The Greek words there actually mean, which is your act of worship. Now, notice what it says in verse 2, and be conformed, not conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. When the sower goes forth to sow his seed, if they do not understand the word, then they cannot incorporate it in their lives. God wants the mind and the heart. That's what he wants. In the encounter, the sanctuary and the covenant go together. The sanctuary interprets the components of worship, but the covenant explains the nature of the encounter between the divine presence and the worshiper. What do I mean by this? Have you ever heard the, you know, the the biblical phrase, Christ in you, the hope of glory? Well, some people actually believe that in some essential sense, God is in you. In other words, the same stuff that God has, you have. That's not what the text is saying. Okay? That's an interpretation of the God-world relationship that's very close to what we're trying to debunk. It is the covenant that explains how God is in us. The new covenant tells us that he, he wants to place... His laws in our minds and in our hearts. That's what it means for him to be in us and us to be in him. So the sanctuary and the covenant are interpretive principles that help us to understand what these things are all about. The covenant informs us that God is in us through his word. It's not in an essential sense. Okay, the response. Reverence. You, you remember what Moses, when he first encountered the divine presence? Okay. Okay. He took off his shoes. I mean, he put his face to the ground. And then he was given the mission, you know, to, to, to take his people out of slavery. They praised God for his goodness. What should be a proper response? Here am I. Send me. Acts chapter 2, verse 41 and 47. I'm, run, I'm running out of time. The worshipers in Hebrews are exhorted to respond acceptably with reverence and godly fear. That's around verse 28 and 29. Let's just summarize this. When Jeroboam surrendered the authority of God's word, he also surrendered the sanctuary as the main system that would interpret the divine presence, the worship leaders, the ritual actions, the encounter, and the response to the encounter. The sin of Jeroboam is not primarily over worship style, who's qualified to lead worship, what is central in worship, the nature of the encounter and the response to it, although those are extremely important issues. It's not primarily about that. These are symptoms of a much greater disease. The sin of Jeroboam consists of abandoning the authority of God's word, the only source of revealed data, which is inextricably linked to the sanctuary, is the system that interprets all the components of worship. That is the major problem. As a result, the system becomes human philosophy and culture. The the, the sin of Jeroboam is systemic in nature. It was the cause for the Assyrian takeover. And it results in the worship of nature over the worship of God. Abandoning the scriptural qualifications for worship leaders. The word and preaching no longer central. A non-cognitive feeling-based power encounter. And lack of reverence, lack of evangelism, lack of all the things we just covered. Now this is my conclusion. And I'm hoping, if this has been making sense, that it can be yours. One cannot incorporate the worship style of Jeroboam and at the same time uphold the authority of God's word. It cannot be done. And so, I pray that you will be here tomorrow when we ask the question, what does all this have to do with emergent worship and theology? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time. And I just ask that you will continue to be with us, to lead us, and to guide us into all truth. Surely you're coming soon. The enemy wants to introduce a counterfeit. Help us to have discernment. Help us to have love. And help us to fulfill your will. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more.